This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, first, it was Michael Spavor, and this morning in China, it is time for Michael Kovrig's trial. A Canadian diplomats, along with those of at least a dozen other countries, the last report I saw said about 26 diplomats there, are present outside the court. They've been trying to gain access. Uh, so Canada and its allies standing there trying to gain access into the court, but they have been unable to do so. The two Michaels have been detained for more than two years on espionage charges at this point, but we're still no closer to finding out their fate. And this, of course, all on the backdrop of what continues here in Vancouver, and that is the ongoing legal drama surrounding Meng Wanzhou. And of course, many people say that until we settle the Meng Wanzhou case, we cannot settle the case with the two Michaels. But let's find out what happened at the trial of Michael Kovrig this morning. Joining us now is Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. So what do we know about what went on today? Well, very little. Uh, as you mentioned, it was really a closed door trial, the same as unfolded with Michael Spavor on Friday. You also mentioned that show of support from 26 other countries, 28 diplomats, I believe, were present uh, alongside with Canada. And Canada continued to push for access uh, right up to the start of the trial. But China's position is that because this is a national security case, it is a closed door trial with no one allowed in. So we really don't have a sense of what happened in court, how long that trial lasted. We're just learning from Chinese state media that a verdict will be uh, posted at a later date. So 26 other you know, countries and diplomats standing with Canada on this. That's an increase over Friday. Is this case getting more international attention, do you think? Well, I do think that uh, experts were expecting that to be the case just simply because of geography. Today's case is happening in Beijing, where there just are a lot more diplomats present than in Dandong on the North Korea border, uh, where the case unfold, where Michael Spavor's case happened on Friday. Uh, but certainly Canada is getting a lot of international support. Uh, a representative from the American embassy was there and spoke to the media as well, saying that they are deeply alarmed uh, by by what's transpiring here and that the U.S. stands shoulder to shoulder with Canada. And so what do we know about the impact of the talks? I know when we last spoke to you on Friday, uh, it seemed to happen in the backdrop of U.S.-China talks. Has any of that had an impact on what's been going on? 
Well, exactly. And many don't think that it was a coincidence that after two years in detention, all of a sudden these trial dates are announced at the same time that China has its first talks with the new Biden administration. Those talks did not exactly go well, uh, depending on who you speak to or how it's characterized. But uh, a rocky talks there between China and the U.S. And, and some people believe that China uh, was trying to use the Canadian cases as a bargaining chip with the U.S. to get the outcome that they want in the case of Meng Wanzhou. But so far, Biden has been steadfast that he will not interfere with the rule of law. And uh, then that makes it tricky in terms of how does this case move forward and what happens next? Yeah. So do we know what are the next steps here? Is it just more waiting? Well, yeah, more more waiting and uh, waiting to see what the verdict is. I think an important step will be exactly how China chooses to move forward with this verdict. Uh, there is a range of, of consequences. Uh, sorry, I should back up and say that most everyone expects it to be a guilty verdict. 99, more than 99% of cases end in a conviction. Uh, but in terms of how they actually move forward in terms of sentencing, uh, it could range from jail time all the way up to the death penalty. And the best case scenario from the experts that I have spoken to believe that, okay, so China would hand down a conviction, but after that point, uh, there would be some way for the men t- to still come home, whether that's via a deportation order uh, through the sentence or, you know, ferrying them away at a later date uh, on humanitarian grounds, grounds or something. But we could be in for a, a long wait, no matter how this unfolds. All right, Abigail, more waiting then. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. That's Abigail Beeman, our global national Ottawa correspondent, talking this morning about Michael Kovrig's trial, the second of the two Michaels to face trial in China. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about old growth forests. That is always a passionate issue here in BC. And this provincial government has been taking a lot of flack from environmental groups that offer their track record on protecting those forests. And that issue is likely to end up in court this week. Forest company Teal Jones is seeking an injunction against protesters blocking the Fairy Creek rainforest near Port Renfrew. So we wanted to talk about why so many groups are concerned about what the government has been doing. Joining us is Ken Wu, Executive Director of the Endangered Ecosystems Alliance. Good morning, Ken. Hey, good morning, Sue. So what has been happening in this? Uh, well, the BC government is supposed to be devising um, a policy overhaul on old-growth forests in British Columbia. So we welcome that. They've opened the door after decades of policy stagnation, but they're dragging their heels. The big trees are falling at the same time, and now there's uh, protests in half a dozen locations in the forest around Port Renfrew. It's going to uh, a court hearing for the uh, injunction on Saturday, next Saturday. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, concern that basically they're going to be doing more consultations about the consultations, um, ultimately about big stumps. If right. they don't hurry up, make the deferrals. So what is the policy right now then? What are, what are companies allowed to do? Uh, well, old growth logging is a very pervasive thing in British Columbia. Most British Columbians don't realize it's not some little corner of BC where they're doing a little bit of old growth logging. 
It's large-scale industrial, 50,000 hectares of old-growth forests are logged every year in British Columbia. These are some of the biggest, oldest, grandest uh, organisms that have ever existed in Earth's history. Uh, We're one of the last jurisdictions in the Western world that still has these 500 to 2,000-year-old trees, and we're one of the last jurisdictions, pretty much the last one, where the government still condones a large-scale destruction of them, sort of like, you know, massive elephant slaughters or uh, uh, whaling of the great whales. It's not that different when it comes to these last of these uh, forest giants. So what are our rules for protecting those? Uh, Well, the B.C. government says that they're going to be devising um, new rules and enacting deferrals. The rules right now basically will allow for most of the unprotected old growth to be uh, turned into big stumps. We do have some protected areas, but the vast majority of the big treed old growth, because not all all old growth is created equal. A lot of it is bogs, uh, small trees in the subalpine areas, for the big tree, high productivity old growth, um, very little of that is protected. Most of it that remains, and there's only about 8% that remains, is slated for logging. So um, they're supposed to have, actually several days ago, were supposed to, after six months of their public input panel's report, uh, they were supposed to put a deferral on the high productivity and most endangered old growth forest types. They missed that deadline. Now they're creating a straw man argument that, well, we can't put a deferral on all logging across BC. That's not the issue. That's a false construct. And it's just a way to mask the fact that they missed the deadline and they're not trying to save the high productivity, the, the uh, grandest old growth that is at the heart of the debate. Do you think, do British Columbians for the most part understand this, Ken? Because I think, I feel like a lot of us figure that this question was settled a long time ago about how we approach old growth forests in this province. Yeah, exactly. People think it's a thing of the 1990s, but it's not. It's continued. I've been working for 30 years on this. And, um, you know, it's just in the last uh, several years, actually, but the last seven, eight years is when you see a giant rise again in, in the popular movements, including First Nations who are trying to get Indigenous protected areas and land use plans. Um, but the B.C. government hasn't been forthcoming in providing the key financing that would allow that to happen. Are there certain areas of the province where these forests you think are, are more at risk than others? Yes. So Vancouver Island and the lower mainland region and the inland rainforest, so around uh, Prince George down to Nelson, that whole area, um, that's where you have most of the remaining um, less protected old growth. You have more, uh, more stringent regulations in the central and north coast and Haida Gwaii, the so-called Great Bear Rainforest and Haida Gwaii, where uh, there was financing for Indigenous protected areas plans and stronger regulations. It's not perfect up there, but um, the rest of the province, it's a pretty dire situation. Uh, Time is running out, and this is a time-constrained issue. Why do we have different regulations? If it's old-growth forest, to me it would be old-growth forest, but depending on where it is, we have different regulations? Yeah, and it's essentially as a result of um, pressure, basically from conservation groups and from, from First Nations in those areas, and essentially boycotts and markets campaigns in Europe uh, and in the U.S. Uh, markets. And so there was so, so much um, of a citizen's movement for those areas that we got uh, big areas protected. But the vast majority of British Columbians now, because there's so little old growth left, they support uh, protecting the last old growth forest and ensuring the sustainable second growth forest industry. We can do what everyone else does, log second and third growth forests like the rest of the Western world, or what the rest of the Canada is doing. The rest of Canada is logging 100-year-old trees. 
Uh, nobody else is lot. Nobody else even has five hundred year old or thousand year old trees, let alone is logging them. This is a backwards practice, like you know, massive industrial whaling. It's got to come to an end asap. Uh, there's a very hot lumber market right now, Ken. Like incredibly hot. Yes. Do you feel that is that a concern in this situation? Yes, the prices are very high right now, so that is totally cranking up the last of these. And, and if, the B, if the NDP government doesn't move to put the deferrals where their own public input panel said they had to do, namely in the high-productivity, grandest old-growth stands, of which only 1% of the very grandest remain, they've already shaved off 99% of the very grandest, uh, highest-productivity old-growth, then basically the, what they're going to do is negotiate over stumps. Time is running out, and uh, there's, there's all sorts of spin and sophistry, and, and my you know, patience... Uh, after about 30 years, is running out here. 30 years. Is that how long you've been campaigning here? Yeah, we're working on saving old growth for 30 years. But I do have to say that the door is open for major policy um, change. So this is the time for everybody to to speak up. So what happens next? Uh, well, um, there's several things. Uh, there's a major campaign um, with the Union of BC Indian Chiefs and conservation groups and various First Nations to ensure the government... Uh, ends up financing Indigenous protected areas and establishing a land acquisition fund. Um, you have to have the financing for to make sure this happens. Um, and there's also a big push to make sure that the um, at-risk, high-productivity, most endangered, oldest, and most intact old growth are deferred uh, because they've already missed their six-month deadline. And for the protest, there's going to be a Saturday uh, Supreme Court hearing about a court injunction, most injunctions eventually go through, then they have to get an enforcement order, and then uh, I think you're going to see a series of uh, an era of war in the woods, unless the B.C. government um, averts that and ends up making deferrals and creating the key financing and saving high productivity and intact old growth. They've got to make a solution and stop heel-dragging, making excuses, and and, uh, making all sorts of spin. Oh, quite the process. Ken, thank you for your time on that this morning. Yeah, I'm so grateful. Thanks for the opportunity. It's Ken Wu, Executive Director of the Endangered Ecosystems Alliance, talking about the ongoing fight to protect old growth forests in this province. Once again, in the forefront because of that injunction uh, application that Ken just mentioned there, Teal Jones, the forest company, seeking an injunction against protesters blocking the Fairy Creek rainforest near Port Renfrew. We will be talking more about this. There's a lot going on with this story this week in particular. This is Mornings with Simi. I think a lot of us have been doing our best to support, you know, local farmers, uh, local manufacturers, anything we can do during this pandemic to support local. And those local farmers markets are a big part of that. Good news, too, if you like to shop at those, the provincial government is actually dropping restrictions that barred artisans and vendors from selling non-food products. You might think, well, wait a minute, I used to go to the farmer's market and that was okay. Right, that was before the pandemic. This had been barred since the beginning of the COVID-19 situation, but it's been really hard on vendors. So let's talk more about these changes. Heather O'Hara joins us, Executive Director of the BC Association of Farmer's Markets. Good morning, Heather. Hi, Simi. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. You must be having a good day. This is good news. Well, you know what? It's um, the devil's in the details, Simi. The, it's, it's the euphoria of having the non-food vendors come back to market has been awesome. However, we just discovered in the same order that um, there's been a new spacing requirement between the tents, which is actually kind of counterproductive to the overall effect of the new order. So um, it's a bit of a bittersweet story, to be honest with you. Okay, so what does this mean? 
Well, what it means is that we, we are so grateful that non-food vendors have been able to come back, uh, but the requirement between tents and booths at the market has meant that we will likely have less vendors overall allowed. So um, we'll have to talk to hopefully the PHO maybe this morning to, to see if we can rectify that and uh, really, you know, operate how we we were in the fall, which is um, with non-food vendors and food vendors and better and more uh, more adaptable spacing requirements for the markets. Unfortunately, there's not an infinite amount and unlimited space at a market setup. So um, when the space is restricted, um, you just, by design, have less people that can participate in the market overall, unfortunately. Right, this was what I was wondering is, so what is it meant to have non-food vendors then not allowed? Does that mean that more food vendors stepped up or have markets been smaller? Markets have effectively been smaller. So, you know, and what that does is affects the operating revenues and the overall viability of that farmer's market when those very important non-food vendors are not participating. You know, they all they all contribute to the, uh, the market. Um, they bring in their booth fees and vendor fees to um, help sustain that farmer's market. So when they're, when they're missing, um, the market itself is missing a big chunk of operating revenues at a very challenging year having invested a lot of time and effort into PPE and modifying their markets to meet COVID needs and all that kind of stuff really well. So um, it has a really negative downstream impact, and not, in the, not to mention on the vendors themselves who have lost a really important sales channel. So if these regulations and hold and those spacing requirements are in place, what does that mean then for these non-food vendors? Well, it means that the market has to make choices about who can participate and who can't. So that's effectively because of the space limitations. Um, they may be required to just simply stay with the food vendors because there's not enough space to go around. Um, and then we're hoping that there might be some work around. For example, um, uh, a lot of tents and booths have the ability to hang booth walls on the sides. Uh, I think that's a, a really workable, positive kind of solution uh, to the spacing requirement. Plus, not to mention... Uh, in the past, that spacing requirement was not there up until this uh, latest order. So um, it's you know some of these things we can hopefully work through with the uh, with the government as well. Are, are some things going to stay then, Heather? Like I know delivery, like that whole idea of being able to order online was very big last year. How did that work out? Yeah, you know we had a really it was interesting. I'm so proud of our markets. I mean they stepped up in the face of enormous challenges to get these markets off the ground all year, and they really stepped up to experiment and experiment with trying out online stores that go with their in-person markets for some it was a fit and a great opportunity and vendors some it wasn't a good idea because it didn't work with their customers or their market itself so mixed results but really at the end of the day i would say very positive uh because it gave markets an option at least especially at the height of covid in the early days last year and uh you know a lot of those markets will stick with it the customers are liking it in mm-hmm. some cases um, and it's uh, just added a whole other dimension to far- shopping at your local farmer's market. And we're getting close to kickoff season, aren't we? We are. Well, in fact, some markets operate year-round. A lot of people may not know, but we have like 145 markets across the province. So this is just in the, in the, in the spring season. We're just getting into that core summer market season. I'd say May, June is the biggest bulk of market kickoff, but we do have some really fantastic markets operating year-round right now as well. All right. I'm going to have to take a look. Heather, thank you. 
Thank you, Cindy, so much for your support. All, anytime, all the time. Heather O'Hara is the executive director of the BC Association of Farmers Markets. I do love a good farmers market. They are concerned that on the one hand, they got this permission to have non-food vendors back at the markets. The spacing regulations might still cause them some concern, so they hope to work that out with the government. We'll keep you posted on how it goes. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about our response here in BC to COVID-19. It has not been perfect. We were pretty proud of ourselves for that first wave, and then it feels like the wheels kind of came off in the second wave, and now here we are anticipating the third. But a Canadian think tank has partnered with Oxford University to work on a paper that takes a look at the responses to the pandemic province by province right across Canada. So how did we fare when you compare us to other provinces? Well, the executive director for the Centre of Excellence on the Canadian Federation at the Institute for Research on Public Policy, Charles Breton, joins us now for more. Good morning, Charles. Hello. Okay, so how did you compare this? What did you look at? I mean, we looked at at, at many policies. The, our, our, the, the motivation for that was really just at the beginning, just descriptive, trying to get an idea back in the first wave in the spring, so a year ago, spring 2020, just what we were looking at what provinces were doing, and we were wondering who's doing what and when, uh, basically. Uh, and so we, we looked at 12 different measures ranging from masks in schools or masks in, in public space to limits to gathering sizes and things like that. Um, and the response, the, the, the answer to our first question is what, what provinces were doing in the first wave is basically other than B.C., which was kind of an exception, uh, every province is just closed down in the first wave. I, I, we tend to forget that, but not a lot of provinces went back to stringency levels or to prop to measures that were as stringent as they were um, uh, a year ago. Okay, you said BC was the exception. In what way? I mean, I, I, I'm sure you, you, you remember that, that uh, in the first wave, first of all, there wasn't really a first wave in BC, uh, and you alluded to that in, in your introduction. Um, the, first wave, the first wave was mostly uh, limited to Quebec and Ontario, uh, but all provinces uh, closed a lot of things, for instance, schools. Uh, but BC was uh, different in a way that it was still very stringent, probably more stringent than now than what it is now, uh, but still less stringent than all provinces. Um, mostly because, again, if you remember correctly, at that point, Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix were mostly suggesting or recommending that people do X, Y, Z, um, uh, sometimes with uh, created some confusion, but in, in the first wave, that was mostly the approach, uh, which kind of changed a bit uh, um, um, uh, over the summer, after the summer and early fall. So that's why I'm saying that BC was a bit an exception in the, in the sense that in the first wave where everyone closed everything, BC kind of did things a bit uh, uh, differently um, okay. uh, than other provinces. Did that change in the second wave? Yeah, so I mean, as you've seen right now, uh, BC is somewhat in the middle in terms of, of stringency of measures, uh, somewhere uh, uh, kind of in the, at the average. Uh, so we'll see what comes next too, right? As you again alluded to in the introduction, in terms of cases number, uh, uh, things are not really trending uh, in the right direction. So uh, we'll be curious to see. It's true for all uh, of the Western provinces right now, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, um, uh, NBC. Uh, so we'll see what these provinces do uh, in terms of restrictions, if they introduce anything uh, new or not, or if they copy what other provinces have done. Because that's the only thing, uh, the other thing that we've, that we were curious is to see whether there would be some policy learning across, pro- 
uh, between provinces as we moved uh, into wave two, with provinces bringing in some kind of new restrictions. Or, or for instance, one one policy that was not copied was Quebec, uh, that had a curfew, still has a curfew. Uh, that was the only province to do something like that. Um, um, and so that's the other uh, kind of aspect that we were we wanted to look into was the is there is there policy learning our provinces copying what another province is doing, et cetera. Right. So were you able to determine then, like, was there a particular province or a particular policy that worked better than the others? I mean, again, uh, there are a lot of those policies that are similarly, that are the same. It's just that provinces have introduced them at different times. Um, But one example is Manitoba, for instance, was the first one to kind of limit what you could buy at a store and said you you can only buy essential goods. And so they had to come up with a list. What is, it, what is essential and what is not? And then Quebec copied that later on in the winter and did the same thing. So that was one example. Manitoba is a good example in the sense that um, it was trending really in the, in the wrong direction in the fall and acted swiftly, uh, became the most stringent province in the country for a long time, and where it was able to get the cases down after that. And you have other provinces, Saskatchewan and Alberta, who have had a completely different approach and waited uh, I would say too long, although I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to epidemiologists to study that further, but uh, waited a long time uh, before introducing more stringent measures. Right. So when you compare then, does that, when it comes to number of cases and, and all those kinds of stats, do all the provinces come out roughly the same or did some provinces fare better? Uh, you mean in terms of uh, when they introduced it or the effect on cases? As to the effect of, on cases, again, like I said, are uh, I'm a political scientist. I'm not an epidemiologist. Uh, so I'm looking at those graphs and it looks like there was a relationship. And I hope that epidemiologists or public health specialists use our data, which is publicly available, to study that further and look into even individual measures and try to see was there a measure that worked better than another. Right. Uh, so I hope that do people do, do do that. But at face value, again, it looks like places like Manitoba that acted really swiftly in the fall was able to contain it somewhat. It's fascinating though, isn't it, Charles? Because you're saying here we were all facing the same challenges right across mm-hmm. the country, but there was there a lot of sharing of information? It doesn't seem like there was a lot of sharing of ideas. I mean, there was a lot of discussions, that's for sure. We know that. We know that public health officials are talking to each other. The premiers are definitely talking to each other. Um, but at the end of the day, that's one. Um, federalism has some advantages and, th- and some disadvantages when it comes to dealing with something like this. Uh, one advantage, uh, I talked about it, is uh, uh, innovation and policy learning. There was some of that. Um, uh, again, innovation in the sense that Quebec felt that it was confident that, that its population would accept a curfew. I don't think that would fly in places like Alberta, for instance. Um, so this is tailored. Also, federalism allows, allows you to tailor your response to your own context. Provinces know better than Ottawa how to deal with its their own province and their own context and how to adapt to its own population. Uh, but it's, uh, it's definitely true that uh, there could have been even more collaboration and coordination, especially when it comes, for instance, for uh, interprovincial travel. Uh, we saw the Atlantic being able to set up the bubble and, and communicate, communicate and coordinate their approach there seems to have worked. Um, I'm not sure if you can translate it and, and bring it back and, and do the same in, in between Alberta and BC, for instance. But it's clear that uh, when it comes to some of these measures, especially interprovincial travel, there could have been much more uh, coordination across provinces. All right, fascinating. Look at this. Charles, thank you so much for your time this morning. 
No problem at all. Thank you. That's Charles Breton, Executive Director for the Center of Excellence on the Canadian Federation at the Institute for Research on Public Policy. They worked with Oxford University to write a paper that kind of took a look at the responses to the pandemic right across Canada, province by province. They're looking at a policy perspective in terms of which province instituted which policy and why it was so different right across the country as well. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a little anxious about that uh, COVID-19 briefing coming up today at three o'clock because we had the highest number of new cases since January 7th that was announced on Friday. It was like 700 cases. They're just going in the wrong direction. And the variant cases continue to make up a larger portion of these new numbers. And we've been hearing from researchers about this who have been sounding the alarm about it for weeks. Joining us now to share her perspective on the Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health is Simon Fraser University, Carolyn Colling. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. So what do you think when you hear these numbers and what's going on with the variant cases? What comes to your mind? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it is what we thought might happen or we're, we're concerned might happen if we were not able to stop the UK variant from establishing itself here in BC. I don't think all of this is driven just by that. I think there were 68 new variant of concern cases of the 700. So even without any of those, it would still be a little higher than we'd been hovering at for a while. But I think it's concerning not because 68 is so huge, but because we're pretty sure uh, from really strong data from lots of other places that that variant has a higher transmission rate, and that's just going to make it harder to control. So when you see people's behavior right now, right, with what they're going out and doing, you've got provinces like Alberta, which are actually loosening restrictions right now. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, time and time again, across the country, across so many Western jurisdictions, we've had you know, countries like Canada are places, provinces where, you know, we kind of try to mitigate and keep the hospitals not overflowing, but otherwise sort of oh, you decline a little while and then you reopen for a little while. We do see that that leads to rises in cases, unfortunately, and it's not what we want, but it's been pretty predictable. Um, and I think that's going to drive not only the regular COVID, you know, not to come out of its declines in many places, but also maybe facilitate more rapid rises of variants of concern. That's worrying because some of them have higher transmission rate and others seem to be more likely to escape immunity. So immunity from vaccine or from past infection. So letting those take hold here and, and maybe even undermine, undermine our controls now, but maybe even undermine our vaccination. That's not what we want to do. So do you think that's what we're doing? Are we letting them take hold? Well, I think we have unfortunately not stopped B117. Um, it's here. It's at 10-ish percent of cases, probably hitting 50% in Ontario sometime soon, if, if not already. Um, so that I think that ship kind of entered the proverbial harbor, as it were. Um, I hope that we can, you know, if we do find out that other variants uh, are not are not as affected by our vaccines, and, and that's, I think, data is new, that's slowly coming a little bit more. I hope we can stop those from establishing. We didn't stop B117. I think we weren't sufficiently... Uh, maybe in time or we weren't able to. I know the Premier asked about interprovincial borders um, and some Canadian jurisdictions have stopped a lot a lot of COVID introductions across provincial borders. We didn't do that. Uh, our measures at the U.S. border hopefully will be enhanced with vaccination. They're vaccinating a lot more than we are in the U.S. They have more supply. 
So hopefully that will help us prevent new variants from coming in. But but I hope we don't pave the way for immune escape variants in in the way that we've kind of, you know, unfortunately not been able to prevent B117 from establishing here. And yet we knew it was coming, right? Like we've talked to you about this in the past. We've talked about it. And yet it still managed to gain a foothold. Where are we failing here? Well, I think there were maybe two or three things we would have needed to do. One is be more proactive about borders much sooner than we were. The the federal government was actually pretty quick in acting uh, around the PCR tests and the hotels, and that'll be a struggle for many people. And, you you know, there's there's bad things about it, but it it would succeed. I think B117 was already in Canada when that took effect. And so, so we didn't sort of stop the international piece. The U.S. border is obviously huge and complicated and we have a lot of people crossing so that's an issue um so we didn't stop the international borders we didn't stop the interprovincial travel and if you have a variant that's 30 or 50 percent in ontario and you have flights going back and forth to here and we're not testing when people arrive or quarantining when people arrive we are not going to stop those introductions and you know it's not just ontario there's there's other provinces obviously Um, and then finally we you know now we have great detection of variants and we can detect it quickly, um, but we would need to detect it quickly and also really act incredibly strongly when cases were very, very low. And when they were so low, we had about a two-week delay in detecting them. So I think that was an issue, too. So what do you think that the next few months uh, are going to look like? I think people feel like things are going to get back to normal, but what do you see? Um, I think we're going to struggle. I think we're going to see a difficult next few months. I hope that after that, everyone will be vaccinated uh, and I hope that that uh, the hesitancy or vaccine refusal will be very low because that's that's really important. But I think in the next few months, w- you know, we're not winning that race. Where even though I think it's great that we're vaccinating high contact, high risk workers in BC starting in April, that's fantastic. But we haven't done that now. So if we had wanted to kind of win this race and prevent B one one seven from taking off, we would have needed more of our high-risk, high-contact people vaccinated today, tomorrow, next week, this week. Uh, And we would need a a higher portion of our adult population vaccinated. And we just haven't had the supply to be able to do that. So Um, so I think the next few months are going to be hard. I hope we can keep our outdoor gatherings. I I think it's a really, you know, if we're going to do something, that's the thing we should be doing. So I hope that that works okay. Um, But I think we're in for a bit of a rough ride for a few months. So when you hear about the idea that they're going to take all this AstraZeneca vaccine and just concentrate on the outbreaks, workplaces, uh, do you think that's the way to go? I think it's really smart. Um, we showed in modeling work, and you know, there's lots of models that show this, not just ours, that if you can prevent transmission in high-contact, high-risk people, you actually benefit everyone. So I don't think it's about, you know, oh, my God, here's an outbreak. Let's vaccinate right here, right now. I think it's about historically where has the risk been, where has the highest contact happened in some of our most essential services and workplaces and really try to prevent transmission there because it's those communities and and workplaces that bring, you know, the risk of transmitting COVID more broadly. And you get the, the chains that happen, you know, some workplace and then the home and then a different workplace and then another someone else's home and then so on and it goes along. So you can prevent all of that by vaccinating high risk, high contact people. It means we could reduce our exposure dramatically between now and, you know, the summer when more of the, the working at home, general aged adult population can be vaccinated. All right. Fingers crossed on that. Carolyn, thank you so much for your time.
Thank you. Kellen Colane is an SFU professor and Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection Evolution and Public Health, uh, talking about the decision to kind of reopen in provinces like Alberta. And there is not a sense that they have variants like the B117 variant under control there. So we're kind of gambling with keeping things the way they are and hoping that we can vaccinate fast enough. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, people are starting to look down the road, right, to what a post-vaccination world might look like. And a lot of people are wishing that it'll happen sooner, obviously, rather than later. So for you, would that involve getting on a cruise ship, maybe, after everything that has happened? Well, at least one cruise line is definitely hoping so. To join us now to talk more about this whole situation is Claire Newell, president of Travel Best Bets. Hi, Claire. Hi there, Simi. And you know what? It's not just one. There are so many cruise lines. And, you know, there's um, the private sector really isn't waiting for um, any rules to be set out internationally or have some, you know, the consensus for an international plan for vaccine verification when it comes to travel. And they were through they went through the ringer. You know, we we know that during this pandemic. And so cruise lines were the first and they really are kind of leading the way. Right. And so it started with the UK-based Saga Cruises and then American Steamboat Company, Victory Cruise Lines. These are small, okay? I know that. But um, uh, the the most recent ones are Celebrity Cruise Lines and Royal Caribbean, big names. So first it was Royal Caribbean that announced that they were going to be sailing for the first time on Odyssey of the Seas, which is their newest ship out of Haifa in Israel, which of course has a vaccine rule. Yes. Like you can't go there without having a vaccine. So that ship completely vaccinated like the other cruise lines I just mentioned. Um, but they announced just on Friday that they will also be sailing out of Nassau in the Bahamas as well. Celebrity Cruise Lines, which is a sister line to Royal Caribbean. They'll be sailing out of St. Martin. Crystal, and those are both in June. Crystal Cruise Lines has announced in July they're going to be starting from the Bahamas. Princess Cruises will restart in July from the UK. And on uh all of these sailings, both the guests as well as the crew, will need to be uh, vaccinated. Right. So you'll have to provide, I would assume, proof of that, as you mentioned. So while countries are kind of trying to debate having these COVID vaccination passports, these cruise lines are saying, yeah, we're just going to make this a done thing. That's right. They are. And I think that that's, um, you know, that's their only way back that will instill confidence in travelers because I I wouldn't go on board anything if I didn't know that everyone else had been vaccinated. That's just kind of the reality of it. And you mentioned about the travel passes. Um, You know, these, there's a number of them that are in circulation as like beta testing, but the one that I think is coming fastest is the IATA travel pass. And just last week they announced the arrival in London Heathrow of the very first traveler using that new travel pass app. We'll be able to download that onto our smartphone whether that's android or an apple device probably within the next within the next couple of weeks for sure but what that does show is that um it just basically demonstrates that technology can securely conveniently and efficiently help travelers and governments to manage health credentials because it's no secret i mean i think the british airways ceo sean doyle has been the most vocal about this Mm -hmm. he noted that it can take 20 minutes to review a traveler's paperwork so unless we have a digital solution can you imagine the lineups yeah yeah. how is that how does that iata passport work then how is it different from just having a vaccination card 
Yeah, it's interesting. Well, it could this this could end up coming in the way of several different things. I mean, this might be an imprint on your passport. It could be a QR code that's scanned from your phone. It could be a stamp on your healthcare card. We really don't know what our government here in Canada is going to decide is going to work. Um, but the the reason I think that the IATA travel pass is so good is because it's um, global. They are trying to do this involving all of the airlines, and then what whoever needs or wants to see that vaccine, and every single day that. I come into the office, another country is opening up for vaccinated travelers. So I think there's going to be this need. Um, but at this stage of the game, we haven't heard what the federal government wants to do. But I think that they are lagging on this. They they can't be a follower. They need to be a leader in promoting the, the concept of a vaccine passport, because that's the reality of it. Um, that's the bottom line. If you, it's your golden ticket coming up for travel, uh, moving yeah. forward. And I'm not saying that it's a, you know, just vaccine is going to be enough. I think until the vaccine is proven to prevent transmission of the virus, it's still going to be in conjunction with testing and masks right. and all of that type of thing. But it's going to be your golden ticket. Do you think people are willing to do this? Because when you think back right to the beginning of the pandemic, Claire, and what a nightmare it was to be on a cruise ship at that time, right? With everything that was going wrong and trying to get off and trying to get flown home and people were freaking out. Are people ready to just forget all about that, do you think, and get back on board? You know, it's interesting that you say that. I think, yes, there's a part of the population that will be. There's a part that won't. Um, but I think that the deals that are out in the marketplace. <laughs> oh, the always, deals. That's all it's going to take that, is some deals. Honestly, you know, with everything that I've seen in 30 years in this industry, when there's some sort of natural disaster, some sort of incident, some sort of, well, anything that's going on, it takes one heck of a deal to get people back. It's strange. That's that so that's true, though. How people, it's true. It's true. Yeah. I remember you're right. I remember post 9-11, right? People being very nervous about the airline industry. And then look what happened. There were people got back on board. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that uh, there will be the people who were probably like me as soon as I'm vaccinated and I'm able to go and our Canadian government lifts the restrictions because, of course, we have to do what our government is saying right now. Now is not the time to travel. But when those are lifted, I will be probably one of the first to go. Um, but then there will be people who want to wait until people like me come back. And then there will be people who want to wait a full year or two or who just say, I don't want to travel at all. So is that, do you think, what the travel industry is waiting for at this point? Is it a bit of a holding pattern? Because they know there's going to be demand. It's just managing to hang in there until they're able to book that demand. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, everyone's waiting really for this uh, herd immunity and for the travel restrictions to be lifted. But I do think that there's pent up demand. Um, there was an interesting study by IATA done, and it said that 80% of people in both the UK and the US who were who were surveyed said that the worst part of the pandemic was the fact that they could not travel. And I, I, I every time I talk to people, they're like, well, I want to travel. Can't wait. Well, I think people are getting very antsy being at home. So can Canadians book this Bahamas cruise? They can. The problem is, is that um, right now it would probably be, I would be cautiously optimistic saying that you could book for maybe fall and into 2022, but any earlier than that, you know, our federal government has been saying for a long time by September, everyone who wants that vaccine could have it. I know that that date has been moved up, but I think, you know, once everyone's got second doses, there's a lot to go through. We still have the hotel, yeah. mandatory hotel quarantine and all of these restrictions that are in place. I don't see it coming down those restrictions coming off fast. It'll be a very methodical, slow process. And I'm hoping that by fall, that things will be closer to normal when it comes to travel. We will see. Claire, thank you.
Fingers crossed. Thanks. Bye, Fingers Cindy. crossed. Claire Newell, president of Travel Best Bets.